Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savills that recycles everything, including its own jokes, and wastes as little energy as possible getting to the heart of the biggest issues in the property world. Like today's, for instance, how is the challenge of tackling climate change going to affect where we live, work and play? You can either stop consuming as much, stop travelling as much, stop using as much energy for heating and, and for your home, or you can find technological solutions in order to solve some of those problems. And can we really hit that target of living in a carbon-neutral world by 2050? It is achievable, but we need the policy and the regulations to come through now around planning, around building regs, and at the moment that's not happening. I'm Guy Ruddle, and joining me in the studio, which we've all walked to, by the way, are Thomas McMillan, a director in the Savills Energy Team, and a chartered environmentalist, Thomas. I didn't know something like that existed. Well, it does, and good morning, Guy. Excellent. Lovely to see you. Emily Norton is a Real Estate Insights regular. Emily, hello. Welcome back. Nice to be here. She's Head of Research for the Rural Energy and Projects Division at Savills. She's also a partner on a farm. In Norfolk. Is that a family farm? That's absolutely correct. My family still have a farm up in Norfolk. And what does it do? Uh, we a small mixed dairy and arable farm. Oh, okay, cool. And Jonathan Hale is a senior sustainability consultant in the property management team. He spends his time helping clients comply with sustainability things and generally perform better, presumably, Jonathan. That's absolutely correct. Thank you for the great introduction, Guy. So let's, uh, let's crack on with this. It's a big subject, climate change. How central to the whole climate change thing thing is the world of property, do you think? It is absolutely front and centre. Uh, I mean, we're here today, each with our own sort of area of specialism and, and thinking, but actually the climate change debate crosses across all of them, uh, which is why it's particularly um, interesting how we coordinate a response which which sort of integrates the thinking uh, and doesn't perhaps go straight to, uh, for example, offsetting, um, there's an awful lot of investment which needs to happen if if we're collectively to address the challenge ahead of us. I sort of figure, Jonathan, that 50% of carbon emissions come from buildings. Is that right? Yeah, um, between 40 and 50%. That's absolutely right, Guy. And um, it, uh, in addition to that, just to put things into context, uh, transportation accounts for 27%. I think from a property management perspective and sustainability, um, our main role as a division is to look after the real estate, which is held within pension funds. Our clients are typically fund managers, and we need to ensure that they have a strategy for the level of expectations that are now out there um, in frameworks for disclosure and reporting, such as the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark and also indices-related reporting, such as the European Uh, Property Real Estate Association for Sustainability Best Practice Recommendations, known as EPRA. EPRA, there you go. And I think this is particularly interesting that a lot of what the work, a lot of the work that we are doing is very much driven by um, owners uh, and their stakeholders who are really driving this. As much as government have set some useful targets and we have that framework uh, looking forward over the next 30 years, uh, it really is the private sector which is driving demand for making sure that uh, all assets across all property classes are, are meeting that climate challenge. Yeah, and Thomas, do you find when you're talking to clients that this is front and centre? Much more so since Next Zero was announced. So we're getting a lot of inquiries from multiple different business types, whether it's the commercial property management guys, the 
um, data centers. Um, there's really a, a range of inquiries coming in, and there's two drivers, that net zero, but also this new, no new gas by 2025. That's really focusing minds within the house building community and what that might mean for the way they go about developing sites over the next five or 10 years. So let's look at some of those things one by one, because there are a few sort of things in there which people might not fully understand. Net zero is is this target of net carbon, net zero carbon as a society by 2050 at the moment. Is that, is that right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So I saw a great um, graphic. There's all sorts of things on the internet available to explain this, but it's very much like a bathtub. Uh, and at the moment, what we're doing, we, we keep filling up the bathtub with more carbon uh, and then natural processes eventually sequester that carbon back into, um, uh, into the environment. Um, but what's happening at the moment is we are filling up the bath too quickly. So effectively, we're getting more and more carbon effectively being sucked out of the ground from, from very, very long-term storage. And the natural processes that we're all part of haven't got the capacity to keep up with what's happening. And the no new gas by 20... Sorry, you'll have to remind me, Thomas. How, 2025. And that's a, and that's in terms of domestic uh, you know, uh, houses, right? So that was a government statement around new houses... Yeah. Uh, what they really mean is that they are going to push towards low carbon technologies um, and restricting the development of properties without low carbon. So no new gas is a nice headline. There's a lot more detail to what that actually means. All these things are things that government, you know, the state, if you like, you know, have targets and things like that. Is it government that's the driving force for, for, for changing the way we build, live, etc.? Or is it actually people who are, who, are, who are the driving force? I think it's far broader. You know, take the time it took um, to go from the Kyoto Protocol to the Paris Agreement. That's a significant period of time, over 25 years. So, um, you know, you look at what has transpired since then, and it was the Committee on Climate Change that recommended the government um, push towards uh, drafting net zero into legislation by 2050, upping it from um, 80% as it stood originally. So I think thereafter, what you then start to see is competition, disclosure and transparency come into the market and that plays into the hands of the Financial Stability Board, the FSB, um, who have released a task force for climate-related financial disclosure. So, um, so to interrupt, what, mm. when you say competition, do you mean competition between companies and house buildings? Like we're the most environmentally friendly. We're, it, the, we're the most sustainable. Exactly. I think policy has helped to drive legislation and vice versa on occasion. You only have to look at the um, speed at which the, no pun intended, the transportation industry has moved ahead since the announcement of electrification of vehicles by 2040. You're seeing many of the fleets start to hit those EV sort of, uh, you know, uh, benchmarks mid-2020s. The challenge with that is simply working out what difference di- what differences can be made and when. Uh, and I think the, the financial mechanisms that are working now are, are causing investors and, and those regulated sectors to say, well, we need to be uh, carbon accounting. We need to work out what our impact is, which is great, you know, and they can start to then have an influence. They can start to uh, amend and nudge behaviour. The difficulty is when you've got already an existing property asset, uh, for example, a home, you know, and, and the homes that we all live in, you know, what control do you really have over how any f- energy efficient it is? And where is that investment going to come from to improve those existing property assets? And, and that, absolutely. I want to, I'd like to get on to talk about, you know, sort of how we are going to change our existing homes, our new homes, our office buildings, all that stuff any second now. But just before we do that, this big 
net zero carbon by 2050. Is it actually, in terms of your world, property and, and the like, is it actually, do you think, achievable? It is achievable, but we need the policy and the regulations to come through now around planning, around building regs. And at the moment, that's not happening. So the Climate Change Committee have been very clear that we're going to miss our carbon targets going forward from the mid kind of 2025s if we don't start to act now and put that regulation in. Right. So the really interesting thing is is whether uh, technology will save us. This is the way that I sort of often describe this. Um, we are living fairly unsustainable existences. And there's this idea that if you're going to meet a, a, a net zero challenge, you can either sort of stop consuming as much, stop traveling as much, uh, stop using as much energy for heating and, and for your home, um, or you can find techno technological solutions in order to solve some of those problems. And I think at the moment, uh, the, the policy shift is still looking towards technology in order to sort of allow people to carry on uh, driving cars and, and moving around in the way that we do and living the kind of lifestyles that we do here in this country uh, without necessarily um, seeking to stop people from doing that. And I think that's one of the, the biggest questions. I think the key with technology is that the cost has come down a lot, as well as the, 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 the number of... Um, products that are available to you. So when you start to look at property and you start to look at passive house design solutions, and, and that fits in very well with modular design, you can start to see that actually the, the cost of delivering those types of properties are now within reach. So you're talking about them being about 15% more than the traditional house. And when you look at a passive house and you say, well, the cost of heating that house is £50 a year, it's 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 part of that whole life cost. And actually, when you roll it into 25, 35 years, it really isn't any more expensive than doing what we're currently doing. It's about shifting the market to that point, getting the volume and the skills within that, that passive house design. Just explain what a passive home is quickly. From my perspective, and this by any means isn't the exact definition, but it's a German standard of house design, which means that um, practically no leaks, no gaps, and all of the um, air, anything that's heated, um, you know, the house does the job of regulating internal temperature. And is that, do you think, one of the key things in terms of the homes we're going to live in in 30 years' time? I think the transition from existing housing stock to uh, what you might call a sustainable housing stock is going to take an awful lot longer. But I think the bigger concern is we can do all of this, but still have a carbon impact. And that's where this bigger idea of actually achieving net zero then requires the land use sector to have uh, the sink effect in order to be able to offset that inevitable impact that we can't get rid of through um existence uh, in the way that we know it. Does that mean, you know, just planting more trees or is it more complicated than that these days? Unfortunately, it is an awful lot more complicated than that. We, we can't simply plant trees uh, in order to get out of the situation that we are in. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a much, much broader dynamic with the fundamental uh, sort of, you know, point about thinking about tree planting is that what do you do with the tree at the end of its life? So a tree will only live for a certain amount of time. Ideally, we would start 
storing that tree and the carbon within it within buildings so that it's locked up for another generation until those buildings are recycled. But at the moment, there's sort of these gaps within the within the policy um, framework and within those ambitions where the, some of the really simple things that government could be doing are not yet being done. I think it's a really interesting point about the trees and, and actually buildings because at the moment we're doing a lot of steel and glass when we're, when we're building buildings and we're focusing on reducing the energy use within those buildings, but embodied carbon within those buildings is really key. And timber and the use of timber within buildings going forward is going to be really, the, I think, the architectural change that we'll start to see to come in over the next decade. So timber used in a way where nothing leaks and lots of devices in our homes so that we use the least possible amount of energy. That's houses done. What about offices? Is that is, are offices going to radically change, do you think, in the next 30 years? Well, to, to keep that timber focus on, on offices, there's, there's increased focus on compressed laminate timber and that being a, a material of the future or the material of now, really. It's, it's there. It can be used. It's just about shifting the market and the people within the market and the way they're designing buildings and the regulations and, and policy that's, that sits behind that. And, and that is a material that has a lot of focus for reducing the embedded carbon within commercial property and those, those office and industrial sites that uh, are so essential to modern day life. But there's a lot about how people travel to work as well. And at this moment... The and I, whether people travel to yeah, work. Yeah, and whether people travel to work and actually investing in um, remote working and the infrastructure around remote working. Uh, you know, you, you introduced this by saying we all uh, walked here, but, but I walked here from the office, which is just around the corner. You know, I got the train in from home and actually to get to the train station, I had to drive. So that embedded cost in, in travel and, and this idea of how we move around the country um, is, is, you know, also what, what we're used to doing. We used to that level of connectivity so how, how do we go back to more sustainable transport systems so here's a sort of slightly off the wall question then because it's about the quality of working and things like that so to pick up on on how you got here and the reasons you could have stayed at home and we could have got you on a phone line and you and we would have had a similar conversation but it wouldn't be quite as good because we wouldn't have been face to face and the sound quality wouldn't have been quite as good and i'm i only mentioned that because there is something, isn't there, about maybe we're going to have to sacrifice a bit of what's ideal for us in terms of the way we work in order to be more carbon neutral and more sustainable, Jonathan. I think taking steps and being selective, uh, planning further in advance can help you get the best of both. I, I agree. I think, you know, FaceTime is really important and we'll never leave the office place i think you know internationally i think uh, webex and um you know video conferencing has to be you know a given but i think in the uk to meet people at least you know a few times a year whether it's the clients but conduct the rest of your meetings on the phone yeah that, that works very well and and i would say that the you know in terms of business communication has changed significantly over the past five years this, this comes back to me to this idea that individuals feel very empowered at the moment to do something about climate change and to respond in whatever way they can. You know, you, you know, we're working with investors, we're working with businesses, but actually it's, it's the kind of individual level of action of saying things aren't happening quick enough. And Greta Thunberg has really drawn attention to the power of the individual to respond to this sort of thing. And I think that's why we, it does feel a bit like you're battling on all fronts and why individuals... Um, feel very empowered to be actually able to stand up and, and do something. You know, we're very close to Oxford Circus here where not so long ago there was a pink boat parked there. You know, 
really drawing awareness to this as an issue. Uh, so across the piece, the property sector absolutely has to respond. And that, from Emily, sounds quite positive uh, about the future. Thomas, Jonathan, are you as positive as Emily about that, that individuals and people generally can, can make this change? I am as long as government follows the Climate Change Committee and what they've set out. Jonathan? Yeah, I think internationally we're in an agreement and therefore um, the government have been seen as leaders and um, we will be able to meet these targets, but it won't be without significant efforts and behavioural change. Now, as some of you know from being here before, Emily... Uh, you can't come in here without doing uh, delivering a Savile standout statistic. And I, there are rumours that, that people spend days not doing their day job and developing a Savile standout statistic. I hope that's not true because it's only meant to be a little bit of fun and sort of slightly elucidate the issue. But let's go for it. Uh, who wants to go first? Thomas is, so, Thomas is keen. What's your Savile standout statistic, Thomas? So we spoke about no new gas from 2025. Uh, for net zero to get to 2050, there's a lot of focus on electrification of heat. And the Climate Change Committee have projected up to 19 million heat pumps being required. Last year, we installed 27,000. <laughs> we were talking about being positive a second ago. Jonathan, what's yours? In terms of how much will this cost? I thought that would be an interesting question okay, to ask the go. room. Yeah. Um, so in order to reach, uh, reach net zero by the year 2050, that will cost, based on the Committee on Climate Change's current estimates, 1% to 2% of GDP. So that's pretty high. We're, we're, yeah. we're definitely in the billions there, so at the order of 10. It's kind of pretty high, but then we wouldn't have a GDP unless we do this. And I think that's the kind of the individual action bit, isn't it? You know, that that's not a reason not to do it. It's uh, very empowering to say, do you know what? You know, that spend, that growth is not sustainable unless we deal with it. Anyway, back to the Committee on Climate Change. They are the ones who are really holding government to account uh, on all of this stuff. Uh, and the land use sector is going to be massively impacted by this too. So the UK is about 17 million hectares of land and the Committee on Climate Change have predicted that about 4.2 million hectares of that land needs to be released from its current usage uh, in order to deliver environmental adaptation that allows the UK to meet those net zero targets. 17 million in total? 4.2 million released. You can ask me what percentage that is now, but I can't do that off the top of my head. No, I'm not that cruel. I'm not that sort of person. Guys, that's been fantastic. I mean, it's really, really fascinating. Thank you so much for coming into the studio to do that, walking all the way here from the office. That's it for this episode of Real Estate Insights. If you want to find out more, there's not, not a specific report uh, that we're talking about today, but there's lots of stuff on the research section of the Savills website, savills.co.uk forward slash research. And if you aren't a subscriber yet to Real Estate Insights, then why not? Uh, and if you want to become one, then you can do so using your usual podcast provider. There's all sorts of things we're going to be talking about in the future. And I think about 40 now that we've done that you can go back and listen to and uh, uh, honestly an extraordinary range of topics uh, so please feel free to do that if you want to in the meantime thank you very much for listening see you next time 
This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.